Hello, I'm Dana Wallens, IDSA Vice President of Clinical Affairs and Practice Guidelines, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, produced in partnership with the American Society of Hematology, we will explore the topic of vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. To discuss this are hematology experts, Drs. Jean Connors of Harvard Medical School and Lisa Bauman-Kreitziger of the Versiti Blood Center of Wisconsin. Thank you, doctors, for being with me. You know, this has been quite an issue in hematology, I can imagine, for both of you and all of your colleagues uh, from whence you're sitting and, and practicing in your in your field. We've had a lot of um, interest, of course, since the, the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccination pause a, a little bit ago, uh, about a week ago. And as uh, folks will recall, we're now at the stage where there's a lot of um, concerted interest and understanding of the cases that have transpired regarding uh, clotting with the J&J vaccine. And in fact, J&J vaccine is one of now uh, potentially more two vaccines, um, the AstraZeneca as well, that has shown these clotting episodes. So we're going to break this down a little bit and get some guidance and, and, and information from you both, really starting at the top. And that is, Dr. Kreutziger, if you wouldn't mind explaining what is vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which is really the particular area that I understand is of focus with the cases we've seen. So vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or what some groups are calling thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, is a group of disorders or a constellation of symptoms where patients will have a lower platelet count than normal, and venous blood clots that occur between four to 30 days after vaccination with either the J&J or the AstraZeneca vaccine. The clots that have occurred in VITT have been reported in less common locations, including the veins of the brain, as well as in veins of the abdomen or the splanchnic veins. Thank you. Dr. Connors, we're gonna go ahead and abbreviate vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia as VTT going forward for ease of, of, of speaking it. Can you talk a little bit about how might VTT present in frontline healthcare settings? Well, first, I, I want to stress that you may hear uh, both Dr. Kreuziger and I um, repeat some of the same things uh, in answer or response to the different questions, because one of the key findings uh, for presentation is timing post-vaccine. Uh, and as Dr. Bauman-Kreuziger said, this usually occurs within four to five days on its earliest onset and as far out uh, as 24 and possibly even 30 days. So if you are faced with a patient who had the vaccine two months ago, um, you can be pretty confident that they do not have VTT. Outside of the timing, patients who present are going to be coming in, at least in the cases that we've seen reported to date, with symptoms associated with thrombosis in these unusual locations. So, Patients who might have cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST, 
often present with headache, and, and that's the most common uh, finding in these patients, and it's pretty universal. It can be increasing in severity. It can be steady. But they also, as the thrombosis might enlarge, develop vision changes. They may experience nausea and vomiting uh, due to the increased intracranial pressure and have other neurologic symptoms because of that increased intracranial pressure. Similarly, if they have thrombosis in the splanchnic veins, uh, they may present with abdominal pain or back pain or nausea and vomiting due to thrombosis in the portal, hepatic, splenic, or mesenteric veins. So I, I think the combination of timing and symptoms of thrombosis and unusual sites is what we've seen with severe cases. But when we look at some of these reports, uh, we need to also keep in mind that patients with what we call routine or typical run-of-the-mill deep vein thrombosis of the leg or pulmonary embolus have also been found to have this syndrome. Thank you, Dr. Connors. Dr. Kreitziger, can you talk a little bit about why it's important to maintain a high index of suspicion from a clinical perspective? So the symptoms of blood clots in the abdomen or brain that Dr. Connors just described can be symptoms that are associated with several other diseases or common complaints. It is important to understand the timing again from the vaccination to really understand if this is a potential complication. Another point is that imaging with contrast is needed to make the diagnosis. And so this is not a typical type of imaging that would be done for all settings, for example, for a headache. Lastly, the reported cases of VTT have had severe complications, including death, unfortunately. So it is important for doctors to recognize the condition early in the disease and start treatment quickly. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Dr. Connors, turning back to you, given your expertise, what should be the first steps in diagnosing VTT? And... Then the steps after that, could you walk us through kind of the clinical um, decision-making to consider here? First, we cannot say this enough. You must have heightened suspicion and be aware that this disorder can occur within four to 30 days post-vaccination. Uh, right now, it appears to be in the U.S. confined to the J&J &J vaccine, but we've certainly seen it with the AstraZeneca vaccine in, in other countries. Confirming that the patient did, in fact, receive the vaccination within this time frame is important. The second step is to obtain a complete blood count, a CBC, including the platelet count. And, and if you're at an institution, um, say a primary care center or even an urgent care center where the turnaround time may be long, like some some places I know it can be eight hours or longer, you definitely want to make sure that you send it stat or immediately because that platelet count is going to be important. We then recommend symptom-directed imaging. So if someone has a headache, uh, as Dr. Bauman-Kreuziger suggested, we need a, a head CT. And again, it needs to be with IV contrast. 
because you will not be able to see the cerebral sinuses without contrast. Similarly, if they have abdominal pain, a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with contrast, or if they have leg pain or leg swelling, vascular ultrasound of the legs, and similarly for chest pain uh, or symptoms that could be uh, associated with a pulmonary embolus, CT scan of the chest with, with contrast looking for PE. Another very important test in, in diagnosing this is the platelet factor for ELISA assay. And so this is a test that we use for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Not all PF4 uh, tests are the same. And what has been discovered in the cases that have been reported to date is that it is a specific heparin PF4 IgG ELISA that is most reliable in detecting this syndrome. There are more rapid tests available. A typical ELISA takes uh, three hours to perform, and people have been investigating uh, newer assays that might take 30 minutes. But these assays, these rapid uh, immunoassays, are not as reliable as detecting this syndrome. If you do not have that available, if it's a send-out test, you should send it out at the same time you're sending your CBC. Fibrinogen is also important, as is the D-dimer test. The D-dimer test is uniformly elevated in these patients, and there was a recent report in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis of a woman who did not have thrombosis, but she had elevated D-dimers. So that's an important test to help identify this, as is the fibrinogen level. Early on, um, patients may have a normal fibrinogen level or a low normal fibrinogen level, but in those severe cases, particularly those that have presented with uh, cerebral sinus thrombosis uh, or splanchnic vein thrombosis, have had low uh, fibrinogens. In that order, almost all at once, you should send a CBC, heparin PF4 IgG ELISA, do symptom-directed imaging, as well as obtain fibrinogen and D-dimer tests. And confirmation tests also can be helpful after if that PF4 is positive, as uh, Dr. Connors mentioned, and those can include the serotonin release assays or other tests that look for true activation of the platelets due to the antibodies and not just the presence of the antibodies as well. Thank you. And and similarly, and going back to where we were discussing maintaining a high index of suspicion, I also would imagine, um, and don't know if I could ask you, do you, do you think that the taking of the history to know if the vaccine was given and or, and or received by the patient within that window period, we probably want to remind folks, I would imagine, or is that always done to even put you on the right train of, of, of thinking? Because I, 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 and this is really a question, if that first step is, is missed, is that in and of itself a problem? In order to have a high index of suspicion and, and make the right diagnosis, um, it's, it's important that people know when the vaccine was given in relationship to the presentation with the symptoms. You know, these days, everybody is getting their vaccine card. My kids have sent me uh, text pictures of theirs and others. So I, I think that you should be able to identify when the vaccine was given. I think the importance a vaccination has, has certainly been driven home, and those patients who do get vaccinated have a pretty good recall of when. But your point is, is well taken that physicians and clinicians need to remember to ask that question 
If you are, you know, two months away from your J&J vaccine, you are highly unlikely to have developed this syndrome. Within the first couple of days of your vaccination, you may also have some uh, symptoms of your immune system reacting to that vaccination. And that is also not this syndrome. So this syndrome does not happen in the first couple of days after the vaccination. This happens again, three to five days after the vaccination. And so all of those typical symptoms of those early responses to vaccination, people should not worry about this, this syndrome as a complication of those symptoms. Let's go next, if we could, to the treatment itself once the diagnosis of VTT is made. Dr. Kreitziger, could you describe what treatment plans should be followed for patients now who receive this diagnosis of VTT? What we know about the pathophysiology of this disease so far, it is very similar to a rare disorder called autoimmune heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And there's a very great uh, review article from Dr. Greinacher and, and Dr. Workington an autoimmune hit that people can look at in more detail. In general, patients should receive intravenous immunoglobulin as well as a non-heparin anticoagulant as initial treatments. Platelet transfusions should be avoided at least initially because the reports so far have suggested that blood clots have gotten worse after platelet transfusion or use of heparin in some patients. You may also consider steroids as it may assist with the headaches associated with IVIG, as well as the autoimmune component of the disorder. And as we learn more about how to treat this condition, these recommendations may change. And so I also want to point people to both the American Society of Hematology, as well as the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, who have guidelines uh, posted and that will be continually updated as we learn more about the disorder. We are just aware of this syndrome now, and the underlying pathophysiology is still not well understood. We believe that we know some of what's going on, or at least we know how to treat it based on the apparent similarity to autoimmune uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. But as we do learn more, we may find that there may be more specific therapy that would be of benefit to patients who develop this uh, syndrome. We also are um, not quite sure why people develop this syndrome. And it's easy to speculate based on the data that's out there that it's, you know, young women between the ages of 18 and 50. But I think that when you look carefully at the data, we also see that men can develop this syndrome and older patients. And when you look at the demographics of who has been vaccinated with what vaccine in the U.S. and in Europe, it does appear that it's, it's younger patients that have been vaccinated. So whether we can say age alone is a risk factor is not yet clear. And as we learn more about this syndrome, we may be better able to identify not only treatments, but who might be at risk. Distinction, excellence, service. Set yourself apart today. Become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org slash to apply by May 31st. Thank you both. Given the uncertainty with which we are facing the rare but very serious cases here of VTT, 
And given how highly complex it can be to diagnose and treat, can we talk a little bit about how clinicians should consider referring or transferring patients who have VTT? Dr. Connors? We've distressed how important it is for clinicians to have uh, heightened awareness and be on the lookout for, for cases of the vaccine-induced uh, immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Making the diagnosis is absolutely the first step. Transferring depends on what resources you have available to you within the hospital, both for laboratory testing, for imaging, and for guidance, depending on, say, the site of thrombosis. You know, if there's a cerebral sinus thrombosis uh, and severe neurologic symptoms, the patient may benefit from on-site neurology consults and maybe even neurosurgery, depending on, on what is going on. So I, I think it's a combination of resources available and local uh, comfort level with treatment. As Dr. Bauman Kreuziger discussed, it is uh, imperative that if this disorder is uh, suspected, that patients not be treated with a heparin-type anticoagulant. And so uh, you must have available anticoagulants uh, that do not contain heparin, either unfractionated heparin, but even low molecular weight heparins, such as anoxaparin or daltaparin, lovenoxin fragment. You need to use either an intravenous direct thrombin inhibitor, such as orgatroban or bivalrudin, if the patient is critically ill, or a direct oral anticoagulant, uh, which are oral medications. So depending on the severity of illness of the patient and the resources at your disposal, we would certainly recommend uh, upfront, no matter what the clinical situation of the patient, a consult from a hematologist that is comfortable with coagulation disorders. And in the, these days of virtual medicine, those consults can actually be more easily obtained. If you feel that your, your resources are limited or the expertise for managing complications related to this are not available at your hospital, Dr. Bauman Kreuziger and I would endorse uh, early transfer. As soon as the syndrome is recognized, you know, if you have no non-heparin uh, anticoagulants available, at least administer IVIgG and maybe a, a dose of a direct oral anticoagulant while tr in the midst of transferring the patient. It, it really does depend on the situation. And we, again, are, even in the hematology community, are, are continuing to learn from our colleagues um, around the world about how to best manage patients with VTT. This early transfer and early communication can then also allow additional discussion with people who have the expertise and get suggestions from others as well. As was mentioned earlier, uh, there are resources online, both through the American Society of Hematology, as well as the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Lisa and I are involved with the American Society of Hematology uh, FAQ guidance, and we update that in real time so that it is a good source of up-to-the-minute advice with regard to diagnosis uh, and management. But nothing beats the ability to talk to somebody about your particular patient's individual uh, characteristics and current uh, clinical status. Excellent. Thank you. And why don't we, before we close, ask both of you if there are any final thoughts, anything that we didn't cover or anything you want to make sure to reinforce before we end our time together. Let's start with Dr. Connors. 
Well, first, we want to thank you for for having us here to discuss this. As hematologists, uh, we can sometimes be in the weeds, and it's important, I think, for all types of clinicians to be aware of this syndrome. The second thing that I really want to emphasize, though, that is that to date, this is an infrequent occurrence. It is rare. We may see that cases increase now that the syndrome is recognized, but it still is not happening with the frequency that people should be concerned about. To date, there is no concern of this VTT syndrome with either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, so that people should not hesitate to get vaccinated against COVID-19. The risk of having a blood clot with somebody who has had COVID and hospitalized with COVID is significantly higher than this rare disorder. And so vaccination is incredibly important for our entire country to consider. As we are recognizing cases earlier, there are going to be variations of this syndrome. So patients presenting with only low blood counts or patients presenting early with only a blood clot and maybe not as low blood counts yet. So again, early, early detections, suspicion, and following patients in the appropriate time frame from vaccination is going to be important for us to catch people early and intervene so we don't see severe complications. We do think that if this uh, syndrome is identified early, that intervention with appropriate treatment can certainly mitigate the severity of complications that we've seen described in most publications to date. These patients came to medical attention and were treated without knowing about this syndrome. And as we can identify it uh, earlier and are aware that it exists and we can treat it appropriately, the morbidity and mortality that we've seen to date with this syndrome may actually disappear. I I treat heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in my day job, and it is easily treated when it's appropriately recognized and the appropriate non-heparin anticoagulants are given. If it's not recognized and it's inappropriately treated, uh, the mortality can be up to 50%. Uh, And that's why we stress a heightened index of suspicion in recently vaccinated patients with regard to thinking of this diagnosis and then treating it appropriately. Thank you both so much, Drs. Connor and Bauman Kreitziger, for your time, participation, and expertise today. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's Real-Time Learning Network at covid19learningnetwork.org. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.